Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, especially this morning from these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds to understand them and our hearts to receive them. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Great stories deserve great beginnings. It's something that all good storytellers know. And it's why some of the best stories also have some of the best opening lines. Take Pride and Prejudice, for instance. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It's a great opening line. Or Moby Dick, call me Ishmael. Short, sweet, that gets your attention immediately. Or there's this one, which is actually engraved on an ornament hanging on my Christmas tree. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And recently I started reading um, some of the books of this children's series called A Series of Unfortunate Events to my kids, um, which is kind of dark and depressing actually, but it's got a great opening line in the first book. If you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. Now, all of these stories are very different from each other, just as the authors that wrote them are very different kind of storytellers, but they all share something in common. They all know that great stories deserve great beginnings. They know that if they're gonna get you to read their story, then they need to grab your attention right from the very beginning, right from that very first sentence. All good storytellers know this. Well, almost all, because it does seem that there's one storyteller who appears to have missed this memo, and that is Matthew the Evangelist, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew, the story that he has to tell is the greatest story ever told. And so you'd expect that he would really start it off with a bang, you know, something grand and glorious, something kind of like the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a great opening line. But what does Matthew do? How does he begin his account of this revolutionary, world-changing story of the life and death and resurrection of this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, I invite you to open it up and look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Seriously, that's his opening line. And then after that, it's just this long series of names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, on and on like that for 15 verses. It is amazing that anyone ever makes it through the introduction. And which makes you wonder, what was Matthew thinking? Why would he preface his account of the birth of Jesus Christ with this tedious list of fathers and sons? Now, it can't just be a missed opportunity by an author to come up with a good beginning. 
Because remember, we're not just talking about an apostle here. We're talking about someone who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No, Matthew is very intentional. And he begins the way he does for a reason. He's telling us something important with this list of names. Something that we desperately need to hear and understand if we're going to understand why it is that Christmas, the story of Christmas, is such good news. Father Paul often likes to say that the gospel is bad news before it's good news. I'm sure you've heard him say that before. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing here. He's starting off by telling us the bad news. Because that's what this genealogy is. It's not just some list of names that Matthew found on whatever the first century equivalent is of Ancestry.com. This is a carefully crafted summary of the history of Israel. And it's trying to make a specific point. By starting his gospel with this list of names, Matthew is reminding us that the story of the people of Israel, that yes, it is a story of God's grace and mercy, that there's beauty in it, but fundamentally, it is a story of tragedy. It's a story that begins with hope and promise and seems to end in abject failure. And you can see this if you pay attention to how Matthew divides this genealogy into three portions, three sets of 14 generations. 14 generations, he tells us, from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. 14 from the exile to Christ. And there's a, a reason that Matthew draws attention to these three sets of 14. See, what he's doing is he's trying to help us understand the story of Israel as a kind of epic drama that takes place in three acts. And first you have act one, from Abraham to David. I remember when Abraham was called to leave his land and go to a land that God would show him, he's nothing but a wandering, childless nomad, you know, kind of doing the John Bon Jovi thing and living on a prayer. That was Abraham. But by the time you get to David, this small nomadic family has multiplied into a great nation from obscure and seemingly impossible beginnings to a prosperous kingdom with a heroic king. Any Jewish person who heard the names that Matthew lists off in that series of generations in this first section, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz, Ruth, David, they wouldn't just be hearing a series of names they would be remembering, they would be remembering the greatness and the glory that they have had as a people. But then comes act two, the 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. Matthew doesn't have to tell us as readers what happens during this period of the story. All he has to do is say the names, that list of kings, all those kings who the Bible says, led their people into idolatry and rebellion and disobedience. Names like Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Amos, shameful names with a shameful history. Just hearing their names is enough to conjure up the memory of the failures 
that accompanied this second act of Israel's history. And Matthew makes sure to kind of press this point home to us by twice pointing out how the curtain closes on this second act. It closes with the judgment of God, with deportation to Babylon, exile. And then finally we come to act three. And what's remarkable about the names in this third period, Ebiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, what's remarkable about them isn't what they did or what stories their names bring to mind. It's that we know practically nothing about them. The Bible makes almost no mention of them whatsoever, no memory of them at all. They are nothing more than a sad reminder of just how far a once great nation has fallen into obscurity. What this second, this last part of Matthew's genealogy communicates is to quote one Bible scholar, that Israel's sacred story seems to have come to an end. That the story that began with Abraham's election ends with humiliation. That's what Matthew wants us to understand by dividing this genealogy the way that he does. He's telling us something about the nature of Israel's story, that it's a story of failure and tragedy. But this story, it's not just about Israel, is it? This bad news that Matthew uses to begin his gospel, it's not just bad news for Jewish readers. It's bad news for all of us. Because it's not just Israel's history that's a tragedy. It's ours as well. There's this English writer named Francis Spufford, and he likes to use this phrase when he talks about the church. He calls us a league of the guilty. And he's right. Every week, you and I join together in making a public confession of sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Those are profound words. And sometimes I wonder whether we really understand what it is we're doing when we say them. Because when we say that we have sinned, we're not just acknowledging that we've made some mistakes here and there. We are admitting that we have made a royal mess of things, that we have turned God's gifts into a tragedy in our own lives. And the evidence is all around us. Just look at all of our dysfunctional families and broken marriages. Look at the wounds that we bear from one another and the wounds that we inflict on each other in return and the anger and the envy and the fear that dominate our public life. Everywhere we look, we are surrounded by reminders of the mess that we have made of the good world that God created. But we often forget this, don't we? You know, I think it's ironic that Matthew begins his telling of the Christmas story with this focus on the failure of Israel's history. It seems that Matthew thinks that you can't really understand the message of Christmas until you come to terms with the extent and the cost of human sin. But that's not how we tend to approach the holidays. For most of us, the holidays are a time of lights and 
parties and presents and, you know, watching great nostalgic movies and listening to cheerful music. And all that's great, don't get me wrong. But there's also a danger to it. Because all the hyperactivity of the holidays, if we're not careful, it can just become a series of diversions. Diversions that allow us to escape, to forget just for a couple weeks about all the problems that we've made for ourselves. It's like the philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, being unable to cure the wretchedness and ignorance of our lives, we human beings simply choose not to think about such things. And the best way not to think about them is just to find some cheerful things to distract us. And that's one temptation we face during the holidays, that it just turns into a time of busy distraction. And New Year's, then you have New Year's comes along, and New Year's presents its own different temptation. Because every time we come to a new January 1st, we have this amazing opportunity to look back on the last year, take stock of the story of the past year of our lives, look with honesty at all the regrets, all the missed opportunities, all the mistakes, all the woulda, shoulda, couldas. And I don't know about you, but when I look back on this last year, I can see a lot of missed opportunities. I see a lot of mistakes. I see a lot of things I wish I had done differently. In some ways, you know, doing this, we're kind of doing the same thing Matthew is doing. Looking back on this period of a story and recognizing the tragedy that's in it. But then, when we recognize this tragedy and these failures, what do we do? How do we respond on January 1st? Well, we make resolutions. We tell ourselves that with just a little more willpower, a little more effort, this year is gonna be different. This year, we're not gonna make all those same mistakes. This year, we'll finally become the kind of people we've always wanted to be. Now, personally, I have to say, I'm not actually very good at making resolutions. I always resolve to, and then I can't even get to that part. Um, But this year, I did look for some examples on the internet of good resolutions, and I found some that I'm thinking of adopting for myself. Like this one. My New Year's resolution is to procrastinate. I'll start tomorrow. Or... My New Year's resolution is to break my New Year's resolutions. That way I succeed at something. Or, my favorite, I was, I was going to quit all my bad habits for the new year. But then I remembered, nobody likes a quitter. <laughs> now, the truth is, most of our resolutions, most of our resolutions don't work out that well. 80% of New Year's resolutions are abandoned by the second week of February. And most of them are abandoned by January 19th, which kind of brings us back to this genealogy. There's something very strange about it. I don't know if you've noticed. It's not just that Matthew divides it into these three neat sections of 14 generations. It's not just that he includes in his genealogy the names of a number of women, which was a very unusual thing to do in the ancient world. No, what's really strange about this genealogy is that it doesn't lead biologically to Jesus. Do you notice that? In verse 16, we're told that this is the genealogy of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, but who is decidedly not the father of Jesus. But if Joseph isn't Jesus' father, why give his genealogy? 
A lot of people have puzzled over this. And the church father, Jerome, he, he was concerned about it. And the conclusion he came to is that the reason Matthew focuses on Joseph's line is because, well, the Bible tends to trace generations through men and not through women. So it was important to list Joseph's name, which there's some truth to that, but it doesn't completely clear things up. A much better answer is the one given by the New Testament scholar, Francis Watson. And Watson says that there's actually a twofold significance to the fact that Matthew focuses here on the line of Joseph. On the one hand, by tracing the genealogy to Joseph, and then immediately telling us Joseph is not actually the father of Jesus, Matthew is making a kind of negative point. Watson says, Joseph cannot be the father of a Messiah who will save the people from their sins because the tragic history of Israel cannot deliver itself from the burden of its own past. In other words, Jesus could not come from Joseph's line because this hope of New Year's is really, at the end of the day, kind of a false hope. Stronger willpower and greater effort will never be enough to overcome human tragedy. We can't get ourselves out of the mess that we've made. Now, that's the negative point. But there's also a, a positive message here in the fact that this is not actually Jesus's biological history. And this positive message is at the heart of the gospel itself. It's what makes Christmas such good news. The hope of Christmas, the hope of Christmas is not that maybe just maybe things aren't that bad after all. Or maybe if we just watch enough old movies and busy ourselves with enough festivities that we can just forget about all the things we'd rather not think about. Or if we just try hard enough, if we just come up with that one technological innovation, just find that one right economic policy, just keep that one resolution, then somehow we'll be able to free ourselves from those past failures. No, the hope of Christmas is not that we can somehow escape the mess of our lives. The hope of Christmas is that there is someone who shares no part in this mess and yet has come and has claimed it as his own, his own history. That's the positive message of Matthew's genealogy. It's not that after 42 generations, Israel finally was able to produce a savior for themselves, but that the very one who called them into being has now adopted their tragic history, all of their mistakes, all of their failures, and has made them his own. The bad news, the bad news is that Israel created a mess of things, and so have we. The good news is that Jesus, the Messiah, has taken that mess upon himself. A 2020 has been a hard year. And I hope, I pray that 2021 will be better. But even if it is, even if in this next year, we are able to get over all the anger and the acrimony and we're all able to return to some kind of normal, I pray that we don't forget the mess of this year, because within that mess lies a lesson, a lesson about ourselves, a lesson about faults and failures, about how quick we are to turn to distraction 
or to trying to find someone else to blame. This year has taught us something about tragedy, but it's reminded us that we really have screwed things up. We've made a mess of things, but be of good cheer. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. No matter how tragic the story of your life may feel at this moment or in any time in the year to come, you don't have to bear the weight of that tragedy. Your story has been claimed by another and his story belongs to you. And that's the message of Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.